Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you to join us for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of discovery. I am still unaccountably your host, Ed Pocock, and today I am joined once more by fellow Archon and podcaster, Frank Brinkley. Frank, welcome back to the pod. Thank you very much for having me again. It's great to be here. So for those of you listening to this for the first time, every two episodes we introduce a different member of the Keyforge community. In our first episode with them, we learn the story behind their love of Keyforge and we invite them to share their unique perspective on the game in a discussion topic that matters to them. The second, and indeed today's episode, is all about bottling that excitement of discovery, where our guests can share with us the deck in their collection they consider truly unique to themselves. So for our listeners, you can find a link to the deck in the show notes. This will take you to Decks of Keyforge, which is a site where you can look at the deck and discover it as we discuss it today. And without further ado, let's dive in. So this deck is... Kravkul, the apprentice who binds the lot. But really, you can ignore the apprentice and the binding and the lot... Crav cool because it's totally cool. Crav cool, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is this is crav cool, and we've just lost fifty percent of listeners <laughs> to this podcast. Unsubscribe. <laughs> yeah. So, so the deck is Brobnar. It is Sanctum, and it is Shadows, and it's a really interesting deck. So, Frank, tell us why did you choose this deck? So many reasons. I suppose the the. <laughs> First reason is how I discovered this deck. So we, uh, I had a Keyforge unboxing party, me and three friends. Yeah. We bought one of those display boxes of 12 decks. Amazing. And the plan was that we'd end the day, each of us, with three decks. Yeah. So everyone. But we did the whole day of it. So we were opening decks and playing each other. And we had a mini tournament at my house. Got a table big enough to sit four people. So you open a new deck, you play someone else with a new deck, maybe you swap pairings and then you move around. And maybe after two or three games, you open another deck. And I was having a, a really good day. I wasn't cleaning up too much, but I was on probably sort of 50 50 win loss. And then I opened Kravkul. And most of the decks that we'd opened that day, we'd been talking about how many amber pips you want on cards, what's what's a good number and how many creatures you want, and that idea of maybe 18 creatures being a good place for a deck to be. And I quickly looked through Kravkul, and as I said in the previous episode, it only has 10 creatures. It's this low creature count deck, but it also has five upgrades. 
and I'd not really used upgrades much at all. So I was thinking like, this is really, this is really terrible. I've got lots of upgrades, but no creatures to put them on. What a bad idea. I've never lost a game with this deck. Wow. So we played, we played, it was the end of the day, played two or three games with it. And it just seemed to monster the, the decks it was playing against. And so, so one of the things I loved about it straight away was what it looks like yep. and how it plays are so different. So if I describe to you a deck that only has 10 creatures and say this deck dominates the board and your opponent can't get creatures down, that, that seems to make no sense. And yet this is what this deck does. Uh, at, like I said in the last episode, I haven't played lots of Keyforge competitively, so maybe there are these kinds of decks around, and this is just one of them, but i just never come across it before. But yeah, certainly within my experience of playing Keyforge, I've never come across anything like this, and I've been consistently surprised by how this deck gets out of problems. And for our listeners, this deck has 19 Amber Pips. That is to say, Amber, you just you just have through playing this deck card by card. Now, the expected amber on the AERC score, this is 25.5. So through playing your deck once through, you should have 25.5 amber, which even for the decks that can really kind of control your amber, can can deal with these things, that is a lot. It's going to play pretty quickly. And I think you're absolutely right, Frank. I think it's an unconventional racing deck because it doesn't have Untamed in. And Untamed mm, yeah. is that, that house that's generally associated through that kind of Dust Pixie, which is the card with two amber pips, that Nature's Cool combo, which, you know, you turn the Dust Pixie, play it again, that kind of thing. There's none of that going on, but there's a lot of shenanigans, and they're pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. So we should probably dive into some of the shenanigans to, to start or we should dive into what ideally this deck looks like when you're playing. Yeah. So at the core of that is some of the big creatures. So the Sanctum creatures, we have Sequis, yep. who is a four-power, two-armor knight that reaps to capture one. We have Commander Emil, who's three-power, and you can reap to use another creature. But then really the one that gets me excited is Champion Anaphiel, six-power, one armor and taunt. Yep. Pop that in the middle of your two creature battle line and ensure that it's safe. And also the staunch knight, which I think is one of my favorite cards from the first set. So this is four power, two armor. And when it's on a flank, it gets plus two power. So it's a six, two on a flank. Given that there are so few creatures, it's often on a flank because <laughs> there's, there's not enough of a battle line to fill out. So you've got those creatures that you then want to power up with an upgrade or two and the upgrades in sanctum kind of form the core i would say so you've got yeah. shoulder armor yeah that gives if the creature's on a flank it gets plus two armor and plus two power you've got protect the weak the creature gets another armor and taunt and yep. both of those have an amber pip so you're getting amber just for doing this upgrading and then there's mantle of the zealot this creature games you may use this creature as if it belonged to the active house so there's a bit of house cheating going on there with those with those upgrades, but mainly it's just beefing up those creatures. And I also notice you've got a card that does exactly the same thing from your Brobnar lineup, and that is Blood of Titans. It's an upgrade. It's got an Amber Pip on it again, which I think is a common theme for this deck. And it gives a creature, the creature that it's on, plus five power. 
I just got to say though, the the uh, flavor text on this one is brilliant. It is Blood of Giants. Why stop there? Um, but your deck works so cohesively with you know get those sanctum creatures on the board for anyone that's listened to or for anyone that hasn't listened to bouncing death quarks uh episode podcast episode on house rolls go and listen to that because it's it's a fascinating study of what different houses do in different decks and i think it's clear in this deck that your sanctum is your main house it's probably the house you're going to be calling slightly more frequently it's got the bodies you want to have on the board and in this instance with this deck, you know, one of the things I think about with Sanctum is that they protect other things. But the other thing about a high armor creature in Sanctum is that they're then just very hard to get rid of. So if you've got Champion Anaphiel with Taunt and it's on a flank, so it's up to uh, eight power and three armor with its shoulder armor on. Yeah. And then you put Blood of Titans on it and it's then 13 power and three armor. It's just not going to move. And that's all fine that you've got this creature, but at a certain point, you really need to get Amber from that creature. And this is where the other upgrades really kick in. Okay. So we have to jump over to Shadows for this because the one upgrade in Shadows is the Silent Dagger. Ooh. One Amber, this creature gains Reap, deal four damage to a flank creature. So suddenly, whoever has this on it, they're fighting if they Reap by dealing damage. Or and gaining you amber, so suddenly reaping becomes as good as fighting. They're not dealing, you know, this this champion Anaphila I'm describing that's thirteen power. It's not dealing thirteen damage anymore. It's only dealing four. But if I'm using it every turn, I can be reaping every turn with it. And four damage gets most creatures. I mean, there may be some AOA board orientated decks with a few lollops, and that's a huge creature. Mm. But generally, particularly in a shadows dominated meta. I think you're doing pretty well with those cards. Yeah. And I notice you've got Evasion Sigil uh, to talk about next. So so go for it, Frank. So again, we, we've got to go back to the, the problems of this deck. It's yes. only got 10 creatures. Yes, they might be some of them very big. They might be hard to remove. But you're going to get dominated at some point by a larger board opposite you. Yeah. And at that point then, unless you can favorably trade really efficiently, you're going to get cleared and then you can't generate amber absolutely so another fun thing you do then with this deck is you start building this terrifying army of armored knights (laughs) your opponent responds to that by building their own board because they're going to kill your terrifying knights particularly the one with the silent dagger that keeps stabbing you when it reaps and you then play evasion sigil has an amber pip before a creature fights discard the top card of its controller's deck if the discarded card is of the active house exhaust that creature with no effect so this is one of those game changing events in shadows those game turning cards that mean that you dominate the way that the game is going to be played that you take that control out of your opponent's hands and you say nope unless you've got some nice artifact control there which let's be frank frank a lot of decks don't Mm, Um, yeah so You, you're, you're really dictating how things are doing. Then. I wouldn't say that this is a win condition, putting down Evasion Sigil. Yeah. But it, it throws such a curveball into the works of how you deal with this deck that it forces your opponents to find other options. It's still really on average. They should still be landing two out of three of every attack. 
because of the way decks are composed. And you can also play around Evasion Sigil. If you know you've played all of your Mars cards and you start fighting with Mars creatures, there's no yeah. way you're going to reveal one, so that's fine. But you force them to mill their deck a little bit, which is which is useful in its own way, and it just shakes things up. It just means that the the calculation that your opponent has to make to clear your board gets that little bit more complicated. Maybe they were going to charge two creatures into your champion in Aphiel and now they need to charge three creatures in because one of the creatures attacks has failed with no reward and if they say fine I'm not going to fight you I'm going to reap I say okay I'll keep reaping too because I've got a silent dagger so every time I reap I'm killing your creatures and you're not killing mine so that's really tasty (laughs) you mentioned in our last episode Frank about one of your favorite cards is gateway to dis this is the card that just wipes everything off the board. It says, no, 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 we're going to start again. And it gives whoever plays it three chains, which I suppose isn't too bad for you because you haven't got that many creatures, but your deck seems to be quite dependent on having those upgrades out there on creatures. And and that does require quite a bit of setup to do to have that optimal play experience. So is one of the reasons you showed such admiration for Gateway to Disc because it's not necessarily a card you want to face with this deck? Absolutely. This deck is vulnerable to that, and it's vulnerable to anything that will clear it off in the way that other decks are as well. It's not that this is particularly vulnerable to Gateway to Disc, but it really stings. And one of the things I've learned about playing this deck is there's the there's the ideal situation that you have these beefed up knights who are really hard to remove, who are maybe acting in every single turn because you've put Mantle of the Zealot on them. But what I discovered was if I have one or two upgrades in hand and a creature, it's worth just starting to upgrade a creature and making a new creature into the problem. And that that's where the Brobnar side of this deck is also quite helpful, or rather the Brobnar creatures, because I have one Crump and two Trolls. So Crump is six power. After an enemy creature is destroyed fighting Crump, its controller loses an amber. I like Crump. It's a nice benefit, isn't it? It's a nice benefit. You know, what you want to see. Yeah. yeah. If Crump suddenly has shoulder armor on and and has got taunt and is acting every turn hitting you, or you're trying to clear Crump because Crump is reaping every turn with a silent dagger and you start losing amber just for attacking Crump, that starts to get really nice. And of course, you know, the ideal target for these upgrades is actually the troll, because if you reap with the troll, it heals. If you put a silent dagger on a troll, which I just think is also a brilliant image that there's a troll who's healing itself, reaping and also stabbing people with a dagger and then goes wailing back into the fight, hitting for eight power. They're really nice targets, those three Brobnar creatures for all the upgrades. They they make it worthwhile in a way that you can you can pile the the upgrades on them as well. So so yeah, so one strategy I think for for upgrades is and it's also my playstyle. It's not waiting for the perfect creature. It's almost saying, right, let's just do it. Let's make this creature into the new threat. Yeah. You know, particularly with shoulder armor and wanting to make sure a creature's on the flank, even the the simplest amount of positioning, you can make that work. And this is one of the hallmarks of a good deck, isn't it? It's that consistency and 
it's quite versatile. It seems, you know, you've got two trolls in there if you want to use a troll, but if you don't use a troll, that's fine. You've got other creatures you can plonk these upgrades on. You've got more than one upgrade for each kind of thing in a different house. So you're quite consistently going to be building up that same strategy every game. So you're not going to have as much variance in a deck as one that's really uh, dependent on one or two cards for gaining a certain play style uh, where you may not be able to set up appropriately to get the win you need. Yeah, and you mentioned Amber Rush earlier, the the untamed style, maybe a full moon or a hunting witch or something like that as a as an approach. You need to find those constituent pieces to start working. One of the things I find with this deck is I just play out my hand and it works quite well. And it's not about uh, waiting for the right targets or things like that it's just about i'm just going to keep pushing with the deck i'm going to trust that the deck is going to do its thing which yeah it's again that idea of the difference between how the deck looks on paper and how it functions there are very few cards that i'm left thinking i need to hold this back or this is too situational to use um we should talk about some of those situational cards there as well uh there's one that that makes me laugh quite a lot i have two copies of unguarded camp in this yes, deck. <laughs> yes, which is an interesting card and with great art. Um, and for our listeners, this is a, a an amber pip card, which is an action, and it depicts really kind of some some absolute riots going on here. I think some some Brobnar creatures. Is that Brobnar creatures. It's almost think, elves. But I think they're goblins. I think that. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. It's it's very much that kind of bingle bang bang kind of appearance. So the goblins have broken into a camp in the middle of the night. They're burning things. They're running riot, and they're drinking all the booze. Um, and it's got a playability, and that is for each creature you have in excess of your opponent, a friendly creature captures one. Each creature cannot capture more than one in this way. So, Frank, a little bit of a strange card to have two of in a deck with, uh, well, ten, ten creatures. creatures. Yeah, this this card is probably the weakest card in the deck, Unguarded Camp, and it, it just makes me laugh. Like that, That's part of the thing about finding a deck that you like. Yeah. The chance of a camp being unguarded is very slim in in for me playing in that the, yeah the chance that I have more creatures is tiny. Sometimes I might be able to manipulate the board and my two or three creatures are one more than the opponent. Yeah, very unlikely. Normally this is just an amber pip, and normally it's maybe a bit of a fake out card. Yes, if you can play it early, makes it sound like you're going to have loads of creatures. Maybe your opponent's going to build more of a board and they're going down a bit of a blind alley because I'm not really going to counter their creatures in in traditional ways. Where it does work nicely is with another Brobnar card, card Coward's End, yep. which says play, destroy each undamaged creature, gain three chains. So it's nearly a gateway to this, but not quite. And with all your heal potential as well, the ways in which you can kind of use that troll to, you know shuffle off any damage that they might they might have gained you can then use that in combo with a coward's end to uh, mm. to really uh, asymmetrically wipe that board if I, if i've taken a bit of hits as they've been working on my big creatures and they then spit out a load more creatures for the final push and think i'm not going to survive this now coward's end comes down and suddenly the board is all of their healthy creatures dead and my two injured creatures still alive. <laughs> and suddenly there is an unguarded camp. Yeah. And I play unguarded camp to capture a single amber or two amber. And it means even more they have to clear my two annoying creatures that are really sticky and really refuse to shift. 
which is really nice. Uh, there's a couple of mighty javelins in here as well. Again, if I'm not really doing damage conventionally, if I'm throwing the, I can throw the mighty javelins and use the silent dagger yeah. to do damage. So it gives me options for damage either out of sequence or if I've not seen any creatures, I can maybe use the mighty javelin to target an elusive creature Definitely. or deal with anything a bit tricky like um, a dusk witch some kind of creature that you need to answer quickly. But these deal four damage and they're so they're quite kind of you can use them whenever you need to, whenever you want to, and they kill most things. Yeah. The other great thing about this card, I think, is a lot of the other kind of cheeky damage cards that we see are actions. And this is an artifact which, okay, not great. You have to play it before you use it. But once it's played, you can be drawing into other cards, so it's not chaining up your hand waiting for that perfect time because you know they've got a, a Dusk Witch or you know they've got a, a Professor Statikin or something that you really want to get rid of. And and I have to say, all of these cards give you amber as well, so yeah. there's never a negative in playing yeah. them. Yeah, imagine an action that's, that read, gain an amber, you may deal four damage on a later turn, Yeah, not caring about what house. You know, the the downside, obviously, is if they have anything to get rid of artifacts, they can do that. But that that kind of an action to bank for damage for an amber is wonderful. Yeah, it's really useful. And now let's talk about some of the cards that you have in this deck that can really pull your opponent back. Because we, we've spoken about this deck, you get through it and you win the game. But what if your opponent is doing everything they can to prevent you doing that as they invariably are. And what if they've got more of a racing deck? How can you pull them back from that? So this is slightly where Shadows kicks in. Yeah. So this is really um, an unconventional selection of Shadows cards, I would say, certainly that I've seen. So there's no bait and switch. There's only a Dodger and a Moon Cursor in terms of creatures. And we've already I've mentioned Evasion Sigil and Silent Dagger quite a lot. So it's not your sort of standard pings of damage and things like that. It's a deck tech house in this, isn't it? It really it's, is, it's, yeah. You know, those, those nifty little tricks and abilities that you need to, to kind of to get the job done one last time kind of, kind of thing. Exactly. So in there, there are two copies of Miasma. Yeah. I think an incredibly potent card. Absolutely. Particularly countering another Russian deck. It's all about stealing that tempo. And if you can stall them out with a Miasma, that's great. I found in other decks with Miasma, it rather forces your hand for what house you play. Because you think, oh God, if they're about to forge, I have to stay as shadows. And in this deck, if I've managed to get Mantle of the Zealot on a creature, I don't mind as much. I'm maybe no. still doing my core strategy of reaping, but I'm also using Miasma to hold people up. I, I also think there's a significant difference between having a one of a card or a two of a card in the deck. And people might play around one Miasma, but getting hit by a second on successive turns is really nasty. Absolutely. And in there, there's a hidden stash, which is just an amber play archive a card super helpful on that card advantage side and you can archive one of those cards that you really want to keep until the time that you need it something like coward's end for instance coward's end is a great target for it also archiving a miasma so it's not sitting in my hand miasmas may be a card i do want to keep so if i don't want to show that i have a miasma i archive it and when i need to play that shadow's turn i can and i realize i've forgotten there's another shadow's creature which is the shadow self 
kind of a good target for putting a load of armor on and then just reaping with so shadow self is it's weird i don't really think of it as a creature because it can't can't deal damage while fighting no. it doesn't have the same function but just as they're wearing down one of your creatures like i particularly like it next to commander emil who's got a really good ability to use another uh, creature out of sequence and it does exactly what you need it to do in this deck, doesn't it? Which is just keep the creatures that you have on board and make it more frustrating for your opponent that maybe doesn't have a gateway to disc, an unlock gateway or something similar to do to, to do some do some serious damage to your your chances of winning with. So when when did this deck click for you? Because looking at this online, I mean, one of the fascinating things here is you've got a really nice AERC score, which is the scoring that looks at some of the different attributes of the deck and and kind of adds those all together. Doesn't look at the cards in combination with one another, but looks at looks at them individually and and just kind of very very mathematically says this is the amount of amber you're going to get. This, these are the amount of creature control you you have, uh, artifact control, all those different things. But the the SAS score is very low on this deck, and I find this fascinating. And and the SAS score for for those of you who don't know is a score that you you, you see on decks of so Keyforge, and this is a score that has been built by Team SAS. It is essentially their perspective on the power of the individual cards within a deck and the ability to which they synergize with one another in that deck or don't conversely. So we see we see a, a quite a low score for this deck of seventy two. Mm-hmm. Generally, these more competitive decks you you, you expect to be winning with are, are over eighty. Obviously, much more difficult in in Age of Ascension, where I think for uh, for our newer players anyway, you you don't see as much variance between decks. So in the first set, this one called the Archons, you've got you've got a lot more variance between between deck power level, but in in, in the new set, much less. But it's very rare, I think, to see a, a deck with a very low SAS score performing very highly from that first set. And that's yeah. somewhere where this is yeah. powerful I, and fascinating. Again, that caveat, I'm not playing it competitively. And maybe in a more competitive environment, it would live up to that SAS score or live down to that SAS score. I was really shocked when I put this deck onto Keyforge, having played uh, onto decks of Keyforge rather, having played it. I assumed that it would be easily my highest ranked deck. And you know, it easily is the best deck I have in terms of just play experience. So it's quite strange to me. And it it encouraged me to then look at where that SAS score is coming from and what, what is being marked down. So like, for instance, the unguarded camps, I have a low creature count. So chances are those cards aren't going to do very much in terms of amber control, which, which makes sense to me. As I said, they're probably the weakest cards, but then you have other cards like Coward's End and things like that, where they're situational cards, but they're the little kind of spice that keeps the whole deck working. Definitely. They're the little the little get-outs or saving grace moments where you, you feel like you're facing an, an unassailable board state and you've got just the answer in your hand. And, and, and talking about some of those kind of saving grace moments right now, when did this deck click for you? When, when, when did you really yeah. realise, ah, I've got something here, it's fun, it's a little bit different? I I really think it clicked almost in that first game where I'd, I'd looked at the deck and thought, well, this is going to be garbage, <laughs> only 10 creatures. And then I started playing it using that very basic Keyforge approach of just 
play the house that you have the most cards of in your hand each turn. You know, just if you're not sure what to do, try and play as many cards as you can and get through your deck. It's always a good rule of thumb when you when when you are faced with a deck that you don't know many of the cards in or you're just relatively new to the game. And I just found that as I did that, my few creatures were getting stronger and stronger. Yes. And my opponent's board kept disappearing. <laughs> and as they kept building a board to try and deal with me, I was either playing a blood money and putting amber on their creatures so they didn't want to fight with them yeah. anymore or putting down the evasion sigil so suddenly fighting wasn't working for them there's also a subtle maul in the deck so whenever i play shadows that has an action ability your opponent discards a random card from their hand oh, that's I, one of the most frustrating cards to play against it should be a discard yeah. it's like proper disruption but things like that that i felt like in any tussle in any arm wrestle while playing the deck uh, while playing the game, this deck was coming out on top. And it has consistently surprised me by how it can do that. Okay. I, I don't really know how it is that that's the case, but it just seems to always be able to do that. There's one other little, I suppose, synergy that's worth highlighting here. That oh, It's the most obnoxious thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fitting because we talked about Shadows last episode. So this also has a single copy of Moon Cursor yes. in the deck. Mooncursor as a name is one of the names of the first thief. The first thief, the Mooncursor, the Dusk Runner. These are all the titles for the first thief. So Mooncursor is a one power elf thief shadows creature. It has skirmish and poison. And when it fights, it steals an amber. I think it's my, you know, my only amber stealing in the whole deck. The unguarded camp is a bit of capturing, but this is the only stealing. Uh, the flavour is dark of night, thieves' delight. Picture the scene. You have a troll with shoulder armour. Yes. Maybe a subtle maul so that when it reaps, it deals damage and heals itself, but it can also fight. And then hidden in next to it, and maybe put protect the weak on it to give it taunt as well. And then sitting next to it, you have the most annoying card in Keyforge, the yep. moon cursor, sitting there doing little sniped bits of damage, not being hit, killing their big targets, stealing their amber. I love this card, Frank. <laughs> and and I remember a game that I played. Uh, it was a competitive game. It was one of those local chain bounds. And uh, you've got some good players in there. And I, and I was playing this deck and I, I just didn't think it, I didn't think it had, had the legs to go. But I, I got pretty lucky with my draws. And the final game, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm up against this crazy deck. There's no way I'm going to win with the deck I've got. And I went first, and the first card I played was Moon Cursor. And it might as well have been the last card I played as well, because they did not get one creature that stayed on the board. Because Moon Cursor just kind of poke, 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 and, and they couldn't get any any legs on the game whatsoever. And then it was too late, and, and I'd won. They couldn't get my Moon Cursor off the board. And we talk about these... Dusk Witches, all these Burn the Witch cards, but actually, maybe the purest, most Burn the Witch card of all is actually an elf. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The way you combat this deck is either you clear my board, which is powerful but normally comes with a cost, or you fight fire with fire and you bring your best combat. And yep. then suddenly you have this tiny card that is killing your your fire and just just ruining your day. It's lovely. It's so satisfying as a as a way of controlling the board 
And it's not controlled through the large creatures, it's controlled through the tiny creature. Yeah, it's great. Well, I, I for one, am certainly looking forward to playing this deck at some point in the near future. And, but, but for you, Frank, what is the most, if you had to pick one memorable moment you've kind of had with this deck, maybe a game-turning moment or, or something where you thought it wasn't going to pull through, what would that be? The, I mean, every game. <laughs> there's, probably, there's, probably, there's probably a moment in every game where I've not had a creature in hand. Yeah. And you think, how am I going to move on from this? There's definitely been a couple of instances of, of blood moneying an opponent and that being the last couple of amber such a satisfying card to play and this is that that brobnar card where you place two amber from the common supply on an enemy creature i love playing this card because it feels so unfair for your opponent and uh you you just kind of go yank i'll have that then yeah so that that is then chased by i also have a single anger in this deck and I always thought of Anger as the card in the sort of classic Brobnar swarm giant oh, yeah. army. You're oh, maybe yeah. using it on a fire spitter or using it on a, a gang, a chieftain or something. You know, you're getting lots yeah. of extra actions. In this deck, what it means is you can reap with a creature, put a couple of Amber on a target, then play Anger on your, your creature to ready it and fight. And maybe you're getting four Amber in a single turn then, which is, you know, it's not... It's not insane, but it's just a couple of cards that suddenly generate you these nice bursts of of amber and that close out games. Absolutely, and you can do crazy things like uh, fight with your moon cursor out of turn. Yeah, exactly. You know, I haven't picked shadows, so that's fine. I mean, you can also put mantle of the zealot on moon cursor if you if you don't have you haven't seen evasion sigil and you just want to be fighting. There's a really good target, which is Moon Cursor. Put Mantle of the Zealot on it and use it every single turn to kill a creature. And we haven't even spoken about Doorstep to Heaven. This is a card that <laughs> yeah, seems to crop to heaven, up yeah. in every single good deck. Yeah. Like, it's just there for some reason. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I be here? I'm hanging around with all the good decks. Yeah, um, yeah. And in fact, I said there wasn't that much amber control in this deck. Oh, There's yeah. Miasma to stop forging. Double there's Miasma, un- yeah. Yeah, there's Unguarded Camp to capture a little bit. But Doorstep to Heaven is is the classic version of that, where it says, well, you're about to forge. Let me just slow you down right there. And you've got a few of those Sanctum Knights that capture a little bit as well that's cheeky. And because of all those upgrades... I imagine that's probably quite difficult for your opponent to get back, whereas normally, traditionally, you might be able to get that back quite easier if you're the opponent of this deck. But with all those upgrades making those creatures more sticky, that, that challenges that. Mm, yeah. being If you're... Taunt, as an ability, is only as good as the creatures on either side of the taunted creature. And if you have a battle line of, say, 10 creatures, your taunt is only going to protect a small portion of that. If your battle line is only three creatures which often my battle line is two yeah. or three, Taunt does an inordinate amount of work of protecting whatever target it is, a Moon Cursor or a Commander Emile or a bit of Captured Amber in the shadow of the taunting creature. So that again, it takes this deck takes a concept that we know and understand and slightly twists it or uses it in a slightly different way. And that, that I find really rewarding. Again, when I looked at it, I didn't think it was that powerful decks of Keyforge doesn't think it is but no. <laughs> yeah it's a powerful deck it's fascinating if you could choose one card to have in this deck that would make it even more powerful for you what card would that be hmm. 
I think I would definitely take out an unguarded camp or two. <laughs> <laughs> that's the uh, that's the bad penny of this deck. Yeah, that's the weak link, definitely. But what would I put in? Would it need to be another Brobnar card then to to keep it legal? Can it be in? I think. Well, why don't we go for that? I, I quite like this idea of taking out a couple of unguarded camps. These being kind of Brobnar's more. Uh, nefarious successes you know it's part and parcel of what you get with Brobnar you get you know the big beefy giants but also if there's an unguarded camp they kind of run right and they drink all the booze and you know that's not necessarily helpful to you as a player but if you get the benefits you get those negatives as well I like that thematically yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think something like say a gauntlet of command or something in that spot yes to be able to use creatures even more out of sequence because the importance of this deck is the importance is about getting the most use out of your very limited creature resources. So anything that would add to being able to use that even more. And I imagine the card Sigil of the Brotherhood, which is the the Sanctum card that allows you, the the artifact that allows you to use your Sanctum Knight out of turn. Mm. I imagine that has been particularly useful to you in getting out of those tight spots or maybe reaping to the next key. Um, yeah, the, the, the trick with Kravkul... The lesson that it's taught me is not about waiting for the best moment. It's just about taking your chances. Yeah. And Sigil of the Brotherhood is a really good example of that. The The ideal case is you have all five Sanctum Knights out and you use them out of sequence to do this power turn. Mm-hmm. The reality is I maybe have one or two, but if that one or two is a Reap with Sequist that captures an Amber and a reap with another that brings me up to six amber, and it keeps me in in contact with my opponent, keeps me in touch with their score, that in itself is powerful enough. It's so often all you need. And with with better decks as well, games can so often be won or lost on that one amber or that one turn. So having an ability to kind of just get yourself over the bar Mm. constantly means that your opponent isn't able to do what they want they've got to respond to you rather than doing what they want and that's kind of where you want to be with it yeah so like like picture the scene i've got sequis and something else down and my opponent's on seven amber and ends their turn i'm say on three you know i'm i'm quite a long way off if i pick shadows and play my asthma so they're not forging great i could then reap with sequis and capture one of their amber they're down to six and maybe I'm using the sigil to obviously I'm using the sigil to do that. So I've already then made two amber. Maybe I'm reaping with one more creature, and that's bringing me up already then to six. Yeah, miasma, sequis, one other thing. Suddenly my turn ends. We're both on six amber, but they're not forging next turn, and I potentially am. So they have to climb back up that hill. They've also lost an amber to sequis. You know, it, it's it's moments like that that it. It feels like the opponent is ahead, but the deck yeah. says, no, you're not. We've seen a bit of Worlds Collide, the, the upcoming set. And do you think this deck will have staying power within, from what you've seen of the new set and the way that the game is going to change? Mm. How, how much staying power do you think this deck's going to have? It's a, a really good question because one of the big changes, even to Age of Ascension, was around... Board. Yeah, board and, and reap Yes. hate or reap manipulation you know stunning for reaping and things like that and that's one of the ways weirdly that this deck could be shut down is that the deck makes you think it wants to fight and then yeah. it might instead be reaping and saying you can't clear my 
my reapers and I can clear yours. And as soon as my characters are actually getting stunned for reaping, that sort of slows things down in a way that you didn't want them to. Conversely, though, there's a bit less board clearing going on in Age of Ascension, which means particularly for those larger, more powerful knights, you're going to have them on the board for a little bit longer, perhaps. Mm. And stunning if you're able to... If you're able to use a creature every single turn with Mandela the Zealot, stunning doesn't matter as much because you're still getting two activations every three turns rather than one every three or whatever it is. Yeah, the, the maths in my head works out. Yeah, Worlds Collide, I'm, I'm really fascinated to see how it will shake things up. I think potentially this deck is just strong and works well in my experience. And maybe it's also that I know how to play it. But maybe facing off against big, scary dinosaurs might might be its weakness. We don't know. I mean, do we know how much do we know about will there be upgrade targeting or artifact targeting in Worlds Collide? You know, my suspicions are with. I mean, I, I'm avoiding spoilers on this, but we've spoken about the Star Alliance and them being quite an upgrade centric, upgrade heavy house, which makes sense with Mars rotating out, them being the kind of upgrade centric and heavy house, making a deck like this even more rare, by the way. Yeah. I would be surprised if there weren't ways of kind of targeting those, those upgrades on the Star Alliance and ways of preventing the Star Alliance from kind of really running riot. Yeah. If, if you've, if you know the the idea of this deck is that you get this kind of monster ball rolling that then is so hard to deal with and the efforts that your opponent has expended in dealing with it mean that they've fallen behind if you have very precise ways of targeting that silent dagger or that subtle maul that mantle of the zealot sniping those key components off this deck then you're left with very few quite big creatures but they're not Maybe they're not pulling their weight above and beyond what they need to do. At that point, then it probably the wheels do come off a bit. I'll be interested to see, you know, how how much upgrade hate there is. And I look forward to us having that conversation when we when we talk about the Saurian Republic in a few months' time. Absolutely. Thanks very much to to Frank for joining us today, or indeed for last week's episode as well. And if you haven't listened to that, we're a bit biased, but we think it's a bit of a treat. So go back and listen to it. Let us know, what did you think of this deck? Is there any combos Frank's missing? How's he going to deal with those dinos? Yeah, and how would you take it apart? That's what I want to know. Yeah. What, if, if you were facing off against this deck, what would your strategy be for taking it apart? Absolutely, absolutely. So let us know. Also, what would you like to see more of or less of in future episodes? And please subscribe on your regular podcast app. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. You can find us pretty much anywhere. Um, But most importantly, if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please help them to discover it. Thank you very much for listening.